So, thank you very much for joining us. My name is John Clark. You're listening to The Jazz Focus here on WETF, the jazz station in South Bend, Indiana. Well, today, we're going to be listening to one of the first jazz albums ever made. Probably the first, as a matter of fact. This was back in 1940, and of course, this was before the time of long-playing records, so... Jazz was still being listened to on 78s. Now, if you went back to the turn of the century, of course, classical uh, recordings were coming out as albums. The longer pieces required many 78s, and they would be issued in uh, sort of like a book form with liner notes and things like that. And uh, there was a blues album done in the 1920s that was the same thing, but uh, jazz and popular music hadn't really had the benefit of that type of forethought yet. By 1940, though, people were starting to get interested in earlier forms of jazz. It seems odd to think of jazz being earlier, and when many of the players were still alive and playing very well, but uh, the first books and articles and historical inquiries were being made about jazz records from the 1920s by about 1939 or so. And there was a young undergraduate at Yale whose name was George Avakian, who uh, was a record collector from his teen years, and he knew quite about a bit about jazz. And he had spent part of his undergraduate years uh, badgering Jack Cap, who was the head of Decca Records, to let him make some recordings. And finally, Cap uh, yielded to his blandishments and brought him in and said, well, what do you want to do? He was only about 21 at the time. And Devakian said, I want to do a series of recordings I want to make new. I don't want to issue old ones, and I want to celebrate uh, the style we know as Chicago jazz. There was a wonderfully active Chicago jazz scene in the 1920s uh, among white musicians. The black musicians in Chicago were largely... Uh, beholden to New Orleans styles, and Avakian did a New Orleans uh, tribute a little bit later, but he wanted to celebrate some of the remaining white musicians who had been active in the Austin High School Gang, Mackenzie and Condon and Chicagoans, the Jungle King, some of those groups uh, that made recordings from about 1927, 1928 or so uh, for Brunswick and Vocalion and some other labels, and they were immensely uh, interesting records done by musicians who were sometimes barely out of their teens. They had studied with, uh, informally, with King Oliver and Louis Armstrong and some of the New Orleans players who were active in Chicago at the time. Even though they were probably too young to get into some of the establishments where those players played, they would hang around outside and listen to them. And uh, they put bands together while they were in high school to recreate some of those sounds as well. And so George Avakian wanted to reunite some of those musicians who'd been playing in swing bands and, and doing other types of jazz and Dixieland and so forth and recreate some of the, the, the atmosphere of Chicago of the Prohibition era. So in 1939, uh, Jack Cap finally said yes to Avakian, and uh, Avakian was given the, the wherewithal to book three dates and record three different bands of Chicago musicians and uh, put out what really was the first jazz album. It was uh, three bands, each of which made two records, two sides each, so each, uh, each band had four recordings. So 12 recordings were issued in all, and Avakian wrote the liner notes. And these were probably the first jazz liner notes uh, that we're aware of. And as I said, Avakian did a whole lot more after that. But this was his maiden effort, and, and maybe his most successful in this particular type of uh, theater. 
So the first two recordings we heard were done by Eddie Condon and his Chicagoans. And this was a band that actually had played together quite a bit. Uh, they recorded those two sides and the two we're going to hear in just a minute on August 11th of 1939. They had been playing together, most of them anyway, uh, under Bud Freeman's leadership, the Bud Fra- Freeman Summa Cum Laude Band, which had recorded uh, several sessions of very interesting material for several different companies. So the personnel in this uh, band was Max Kaminsky on trumpet. He was from Boston, but he did an apprenticeship in Chicago in the 1920s. Brad Gowans, another Boston native, he was on valve trombone, although he played every instrument, really, and he was responsible for the arrangements for the Bud Freeman Band and for this band as well. Pee Wee Russell never played in Chicago in the 1920s, but he was uh, associated with those musicians for most of his career. Bud Freeman, the tenor sax player, was a native Chicagoan. He was one of those young musicians who was participating in those early jam sessions and recordings uh, that uh, really defined the style. Then uh, one musician who was not in the Bud Freeman band who was brought in for this recording was Joe Sullivan, the great stride pianist. And he had been active in Chicago, and he made Chicago his base of operations off and on for the rest of his life into the 1960s. Then Eddie Condon, the leader, was a guitar player who came from, I think, Indiana, and he ended up in Chicago in the mid-1920s after a vaudeville tour, and he started putting bands together and and playing with uh, musicians like these Austin High Gang guys and also Red McKenzie and some other players as well, and he was very well known at that time, and then after he came to New York for leading bands and uh, putting together recording sessions and, and being a general factotum for jazz at the time. And Clyde Newcomb was on bass. He was not a terribly well-known player, but he was a, a, a good big band player and a good section player as well. And then finally, Dave Tuff, one of the great drummers of the period. He was born in Chicago. He was an intellectual um, who had studied uh, a lot of early jazz styles, but he could do a lot more besides. He was Gene Krupa's replacement in the Benny Goodman band. He also played with the Tommy Dorsey band and... Uh, many other big bands as well, but his heart was really in this type of uh, small group improvised jazz. So we started out with two tunes that had been recorded in the 1920s by the Chicago musicians. The first was There'll Be Some Changes Made, and the second was Friars Point Shuffle, a blues. And we heard some excellent Pee Wee Russell clarinet playing in there, who Pee Wee never, never ceases to amaze with his note choice and his tonal uh, calisthenics and all of the different things that he did that really separated him from any other clarinet player then or now. Bud Freeman was well featured as well playing some fine tenor sax. He was probably the most uh, advanced soloist uh, in terms of reputation and swing and, and in general jazz at that time in this type of music. So we're going to hear the other two sides that came from this session. The first will be a Joe Sullivan feature, which is a tune that probably was written at least in part by Jelly Roll Morton, and it's called Someday Sweetheart. Then we're going to end up with another sort of Chicago anthem called, uh, rather, uh, You're Nobody's Sweetheart Now. The other one's coming later. Your Nobody's Sweetheart Now is one of the first recordings that was done by these Chicago musicians in their late teens and early 20s, and you can hear now how times had changed a little bit. So following those two recordings, we're going to go on to our next band, which was George Wetling's Chicago Rhythm Kings. And we'll talk about that group when we finish listening to this small set. So the first tune, as I said, Someday Sweetheart, followed by Your Nobody's Sweetheart Now, and then two tunes by the George Wetling Band, which will be I Found a New Baby and The Darktown Strutter's Ball. 
It's the tale of two different bands there, indeed. So we started off with the balance of the session by Eddie Condon and his Chicagoans, and we heard Someday Sweetheart, fine feature for pianist Joe Sullivan, and also giving some good innings to Pee Wee Russell as well. And then finished up with uh, Your Nobody's Sweetheart Now, which uh, had, first of all, a, a valve trombone solo by Brad Gowans, which was uh quite good. He was an underrated soloist. In the 20s, he recorded on cornet and clarinet and saxophone. Uh, in the revival of the original Dixieland Jazz Band in the 1940s, he was the clarinet player in that. He, uh, he had a very interesting career and uh, was a fine arranger as well. Then we heard some of the interesting ensemble effects that the Chicago bands were noted for in the 1920s. The flares getting very soft and then having an explosion of sound and then getting very soft again. And that took a little bit of uh, getting used to as a, as a player. That uh, took rehearsal and uh, having like-minded fellows in the band as well. So then we went on to George Wetling and his Chicago Rhythm Kings. This was a band that recorded in uh, January, January 16th of 1940 for DECA, and they were the third of the three bands to record. We're going to hear the second one to finish up the show. Uh, 
Um, George Wetling was a great uh, drummer. He and Dave Tuff were, were uh, co-equal drummers practically in the Chicago style Wetling recorded early on, but he was also known as a percussionist and played in big bands. He played with Paul Whiteman's band for a number of years, uh, with Bunny Berrigan. He did quite a lot of different things as well. Uh, here he led his first recording date. He re- led a few dates over the years. He was not known as a, as a leader, but he was a, uh, a very fine man in the rhythm section. Also in this band, Artie Shapiro was on bass. He was uh, Wetling's uh, rhythm section made in the Whiteman Band and also had made some of the early Commodore recordings with the Eddie Condon groups. Jack Bland was on guitar. He uh, was a founding member of the Mound City Blues Blowers in the 1920s and uh, played with uh, the wonderful band that recorded under the name of the Rhythm Makers, Jack Bland's Rhythm Makers and uh, those groups in the early 1930s, an early mixed band with Fats Waller and Red Allen and other people like that, along with people. Russell, of course. And uh, after a while, he moved to Los Angeles and left music entirely, which was too bad. He was a fine rhythm guitarist. And then rounding out the rhythm section was Jess Stacy, who uh, was a, a, a legend even then for having played with Benny Goodman and being probably Benny Goodman's favorite piano player to that point. He had done some Dixieland sessions. He had played in Chicago for a while. He was a little bit later than the musicians that uh, were being celebrated in the 1920s, but he uh, uh, fit right into that uh, scene as well. In the horn section, Charlie Teagarden, the younger brother of trombonist Jack Teagarden, uh, was the lead player playing trumpet. He uh, had been with Paul Whiteman's band for a while. Um, I think he was still with it at this point in 1939 before he went on the road with his brother's big band, Jack Teagarden's big band. Uh, he was not known as a Dixieland player at the time. He did more of it later in his career, uh, but he was a facile and uh, very good technical trumpet player. Floyd O'Brien was a Chicago trombone player who was a little bit mysterious. He he sort of came and went in the recording industry. He played in some big bands. Uh, he played in uh, the Bob Crosby band for quite a while, and also in the Gene Krupa band as well. He was known as a very bluesy trombone player. Danny Polo was on clarinet. He had been in Chicago for a while, but he had actually toured with the Gene Goldkett band in the early 20s, or in the mid-20s, rather, when Big Spiderbeck was part of that group. In fact, he played clarinet on their recording of My Pretty Girl behind uh, the trombone solo there. That uh, was a well-known clarinet solo that people thought was Jimmy Dorsey's work, but I believe it was Danny Polo. He uh, went to Europe, and he had actually just returned a few weeks before this session. He had played with... um, uh, Ambrose's band and some of the other uh, great British jazz bands who valued American musicians' participation. And he ended up going on the road with Claude Thornhill's band in the mid-40s. He was a very fine clarinet player, very fine musician, good saxophone player as well. And he was in on some of the early experimental sessions that Miles Davis and Gil Evans did that led to the birth of the cool in 1949. Uh, if Uh, Polo hadn't been on tour with Claude Thornhill and hadn't died on tour around the same time there might have been a clarinet and it might have been the Miles Davis Tentet because he was part of that whole group as well. And then rounding out the band on tenor sax, unusually, was Joe Marsala, who was much better known as a clarinet player. He had led small bands on 52nd Street after leaving Chicago in the late 1920s. Actually, in the early 30s, he um, came to New York and put together some bands that played at the Hickory House and other places as well. Very well-known band leader and an interesting clarinet player, became a song writer and a song publisher later in his career. Here, he sounds very much like Bud Freeman, uh, tonally anyway, maybe not with quite the energy, but definitely has that sound. And I think part of the uh, 
issue with this band is the fact that it wasn't a working band. It was a pickup band, just uh, musicians who were there together. They all knew each other, but they hadn't really played together before, and there's sort of a lack of a spark, like the one we heard with Eddie Condon and the one we're going to hear in the last band we listened to. It just never quite ignited, and I think part of that was due to the lack of a really driving player. Um, you know, with the Condon band, you had Bud Freeman and um, Dave Tuff and, and uh, certainly Pee Wee Russell as well. I mean, those were all players who could light fires at will. On this recording, Floyd O'Brien could sometimes, but he seemed a little reticent on this date, and the rest of the players were a little bit laid back, and uh, nothing really seemed to energize, but still some good music. I found a new baby, and Darktown Strutter's Ball, all featuring good solos all around. We're going to hear the balance of that session. Coming up, we're going to hear um, Sister Kate. I wish I could shimmy like my sister Kate, which may have been written by Louis Armstrong. He always claimed to, but it was credited to uh, Armand Perrin and Clarence Williams. And then we'll finish up with the Bugle Call Rag. So we have some interesting playing, especially by Danny Polo on clarinet, although for me the, the interest is in Joe Marsalis tenor sax playing. One wonders why he didn't play more of that. Quite a, quite a fine player on that instrument. So... We're going to start with Sister Kate and Bugle Call Rag by George Wetling, and then we're going to go to band number three, which is the Jimmy McPartland group that uh, was participating in this um, project. Jimmy McPartland and his orchestra from October 11th of 1939. Uh, this were recorded in Chicago. This was a working group. A little fuzzy recording because I took it off an LP. I'm not aware of there being any CD reissues of this, which is unusual. There probably are, but these came off an old LP set called Shades of Bix by uh, Jimmy McPartland, which was a marvelous uh, tribute to Bix Beiderbeck. And we'll talk about that and Jimmy McPartland's role in that uh, history a little bit later. So, the two tunes we're going to hear from Jimmy McPartland are Jasmine Blues and The World is Waiting for the Sunrise.
So there we have the last two tunes by George Wetling and his Chicago Rhythm Kings. Uh, we heard um, Sister Kate, a very slow, draggy, bluesy version of Sister Kate that featured a, a interesting trombone solo, very tightly muted uh, Floyd O'Brien and playing in the style that he was known for at the time. Then we went to the Bugle Call Rag, which was a jazz standard by oh, the early 1920s. In fact, the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, a New Orleans uh, group, a group of New Orleans musicians, mostly New Orleans musicians, uh, white musicians, settled in Chicago and started playing at the Friars Inn. In fact, we heard the Friars Inn shuffle uh, a little bit earlier. The um, band, the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, recorded very frequently in the early 20s, and one of the tunes they did was the Bugle Call Blues, or Bugle Call Rag. It was known by a lot of different uh, names, and the young Chicago musicians we're talking about um, definitely were influenced by them as well. Their clarinet player uh, was Leon Rapolo, a very fine and kind of legendary New Orleans clarinet player, and he may or may not have influenced the central musician of the uh, Chicagoans' uh, first blush there. Clarinetist Frank Teschmacher also played saxophone and violin. He was a member of the Austin High School gang, and he was generally considered to be the most talented of those musicians, and he played on most of the sessions that were done by this, uh, this loosely affiliated group in the 1920s, and was playing with some big bands and so forth in the early 30s when he died in an automobile accident, so was robbed of uh, any future career uh, direction and uh, seeing what he might have done in the swing era, too. One of his closest friends was the leader of the next band, Jimmy McPartland. Uh, Jimmy McPartland was a cornet player who grew up uh, in Chicago. He was a, a kind of a street tough, and he freely admitted that if it hadn't been for music, he probably would have ended up in jail. He uh, was the ringleader of most of these young musicians. He and his brother Dick McPartland, the guitar player, who was also heard on this session. Um, Jimmy McPartland was early on attracted to the sound and approach of cornetist Bix Beiderbecke. And in fact, he became kind of a mentee to Bix and ultimately replaced him in Bix's first well-known band, the Wolverines. And uh, that's what brought uh, Jimmy to prominence. Uh, he made a few, couple of recordings with them after Bix left the band. And uh, he was picked up by uh, a band led by a man named Ben Pollock, a drummer who had also played with the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. He put together a dance band in the mid-20s in Chicago and uh, had some players like Jimmy McPartland and uh, Benny Goodman, among others, uh, even Bud Freeman for a while. And they went to New York and they picked up some other New York musicians like Glenn Miller and uh, Fudd Livingston and uh, different people like that. And they were quite a popular band in the late 1920s and made quite a number of recordings as well, some very fine jazz recordings uh, with a lot of Chicago influence, as you could imagine. So also in this Jimmy McPartland band was a clarinetist named Bud Jacobson. Uh, Bud Jacobson, I don't think, ever really left Chicago. He uh, sounded very much like Teschmacher with that very reedy, kind of harsh sound, but a very driving force as well. He also played good piano and recorded on piano a number of times. Um, he uh, recorded a little bit later in the uh, 40s with the Jungle Rhythm Kings, which uh, paired him with the saxophonist on this date, Boyce Brown. Now, Boyce Brown was a native Chicagoan, and he's just interesting on all kinds of levels. First of all, musically, he was a fine alto saxophone player, as we heard on those two sides, and we're going to hear even more on the next two sides. He had a, an amazing facility. He didn't sound like any of the saxophone players of the day, like Johnny Hodges or Benny Carter. He um, really sounded like a 
kind of a, a jazzy update of Jimmy Dorsey or even Rudy Weedoft with his amazing technique and articulation, and he also had uh, some pretty significantly odd note choices as well, and uh, he, he would be taking uh, some solos, as we would say today, outside, but it sounds like intentionally, though. It didn't sound like he was just getting lost in the changes. It sounded like he knew what he was doing every minute. On a personal level, he was interesting. He uh, received a call from God uh, in the 1940s, and he actually joined a monastery. And he lived as Brother Matthew for many years. Uh, he was brought out of uh, the monastery periodically to play with some of his old jazz cohorts, uh, ostensibly to raise money for the monastery. I believe that's how it was justified. Uh, he was due to take his final vows as uh, Brother Matthew, and he died right on the on the verge of doing that. There was some idea that he might not be allowed to do that because some of the uh, hierarchy didn't think too highly of his playing jazz and being out until all hours and so on and so forth. So, Brother Matthew never became uh, an official uh, monk, but he did li live in a monastery and lived a contemplative life except for the occasional jazz gig. We also have Floyd Bean on piano, another Chicagoan. This, by the way, I believe was a working band or very nearly a working band. They have some nifty little arrangements, as we just heard uh, on uh, The World is Waiting for the Sunrise with a little bass feature by Jim Lanigan, who was Jimmy McPartland's brother-in-law and who was on some of those early Chicago dates as well. He played with the Chicago Symphony and... Um, also with Ted Fiorito's big band. So he was a very accomplished musician, and you could hear some classical bowing technique in there, a little bit of Grieg, perhaps, before they went into the world's waiting for the sunrise. So presumably this was a band that had been working together for some time. As I said, Floyd Bean on piano, he had worked with Wingy Minone and pretty much stuck around Chicago. Um, and then we have Hank Isaacs on uh, excuse me, on drums. Uh, I don't know too much about him. I think he stayed in Chicago. I don't think he recorded too often, but fine player. He certainly uh, could hold his head up in the company of Dave Tuff and George Wetling on the other sessions. And then finally, we had Dick McPartland, Jimmy's brother on guitar. He came to New York in the 30s uh, following his brother, and uh, he played some dates there, but he didn't like it too much. He went back to Chicago, and I think he left music pretty much not long after these sessions. So, we have two more sides for our tribute to Chicago jazz right now. Um, this, again, was a project of George Avakian, and doing it when he was about 21 years old. He talked himself into uh, booking the dates and writing the notes and issuing these albums, and they did well enough that he followed it up with two more albums. One was New Orleans, and one was Kansas City, and in future programs, we're going to be listening to those as well. They, were, uh, they followed the sort of the same idea of uh, getting together contemporary musicians who had played in those places back in the day and trying to recreate some of the sound and atmosphere without making them uh, play backwards, in other words. They were still playing you know, as well as they were and uh, just sort of trying to recreate the spirit more than the actual notes of those places. So the two tunes we are going to hear now are Sugar and China Boy, two classic Chicago recordings, two of the uh, tunes that were recorded on the very first Chicago session by Mackenzie and Cotton Chicagoans and the Jungle King, Rhythm Kings and um, uh, all of those groups as well, Red Mackenzie's groups too. So Sugar begins with a very sweet guitar introduction. Again, kind of classical, almost a Spanish guitar intro by Dick McPartland before they go into the tune, and Jimmy McPartland is heard to special advantage on this one in his Big Spiderbeck mode. And then we end up with a rousing version of China Boy, which is really a big feature for Boyce Brown. His alto sax playing on here is not to be described. You have to really listen to this. So, 
These are our last two tunes, and we'll come back and say our goodbyes after that. Right now, Sugar and China Boy. Thank you. 
So there we have it, Chicago Jazz. That was an exciting performance of China Boy to end up with. It featured a real two-fisted barrel house uh, style of Floyd Bean on piano, giving over to a bass solo on the bridge. And great solos all around. Special note to Boyce Brown on alto sax. Really something uh, to hear. Not, not, not what you would uh, expect from an alto sax at that point in time in 1939. So we hope you've enjoyed the program. This is the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark, coming to you from the good offices of WETF, the Jazz Station in South Bend, Indiana. Hope you tune in again, and we will be back with you soon, I hope, with another program of some interesting, if a little heard, jazz. So thank you again from John Clark and the Jazz Focus.